Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our briefing this afternoon. My name is Carol Werner. I'm the Executive Director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. And our, we are delighted to be hosting this briefing this afternoon in conjunction with the German Embassy. Have a little feedback here. Um, and I wanted to let you know that EDSI is an independent nonprofit organization that was formed uh, over 30 years ago by a bipartisan congressional caucus for the purpose of providing policymakers with uh, solid, credible information in a timely way with regard to energy and environmental issues to really develop. Uh, uh, reservoirs of networks of, of organizations and interests across all sectors in the quest for finding common sense policy options and solutions to energy and environmental problems. And of course, ever since the beginning, EESI's board of directors and our staff has recognized that energy, environment, and economy are very, very closely intertwined and that we do better if we look at all three of those areas together in a holistic way. So today is a great opportunity uh, to take a look at what the state of Germany's energy transition is. Germany has been leading the way in terms of their energy agenda over the past 20 years, in terms of really looking at the overall of renewables and efficiency in their uh, national energy policy, how this can all be integrated in terms of their electric power grid. And I must say, those of us here in the United States, And 
course, I think it's very interesting that Germany linked economic and energy uh, in the ministry, uh, because that really goes to show, again, how critically important energy is to running our various countries' economies. Uh, Mr. Curtin has been very involved, uh, has a long history in terms of working in organizations uh, and professional associations with regard to engineering and engine systems, as well as research uh, associations where he has led many efforts with regard to that, and was the managing director as well of the German Engineering uh, Federation's Energy Forum, which was responsible for developing their positions on energy policy. In addition, he has served on the board of the European Association of Internal Combustion Engine Manufacturers. He's on the board and the supervisory board of the European Wind Energy Association and is vice president of the Offshore Wind Energy Foundation. So I am delighted to turn the podium over to Ms. Yeah, Carol, thank you very much, and um, thank you very much for this uh, big interest uh, in, in Germany. Uh, thank you very much for coming and uh, allowing me to give you sort of a brief overview of what we have done and what we want to do in the future. Um, we are living, as you all know, in critical times right now, um, and uh, my visit uh, to the U.S. this time, uh, which I started on Tuesday and I ended with this uh, event here, is uh, to try to seek some sort of um, a, call it de-escalation uh, route uh, in order to get the transatlantic dialogue better. You'll know that uh, G7 is coming up uh, right now and uh, the signals are not as good as from other G7 summits uh, and uh, we hope we can still send out a signal to the world that uh, it needs to have a collaboration and I will uh, represent my minister at the G20 Energy Ministerial meeting next week in Baradoche in Argentina and also there we'll see uh, whether or not the G20 is able to send clear signals in terms of uh, what energy means to not only the environment but as Carol said uh, to the economy and that is the reason why uh, I actually joined uh, the Ministry of Environment, uh, of, of Economic Affairs and uh, Energy that uh, our government put that together and that for me was a very important point to go from business into government, which is not the normal way in Germany. So what I'm not doing today is uh, lecturing you to say what you should have to do, because uh, that is uh, certainly not uh, necessary. I think that's also something which uh, should we not do. We should not tell the others what they have to do uh, because everybody has to live in, in its own environment, in its own circumstances. You have different starting points, uh, you have different targets. But what I can tell you and what I will tell you is what we have done and what lessons we've learned. And in that respect, uh, in particular, looking also at the mistakes we made, uh, that is sometimes uh, looked at very curiously, why is he talking about mistakes? Um, but I think that is something where we can learn from each other in order not to duplicate or triple or quadruple or whatever the mistakes. Um, by saying that, of course, I would also get uh, on my own shoulder uh, to say what have we done good. Uh, but I think it's also important to know about the mistakes. So for us, the energy transition, as Carol said, uh, is the combination of renewable energy and energy efficiency. That are, for us, two 
twins uh, which have to love each other and which have to go together in order to get uh, the economy decarbonized. Uh, at least uh, that is what uh, the uh, worldwide community has uh, not only expressed but has uh, underlined and signed the Paris Agreement uh, that we only allow ourselves to uh, emit a certain budget of CO2 emissions uh, into the atmosphere and uh, that means um, that we have to act rapidly, fast uh, and with clear targets. And for us, that is different to other countries, and that is uh, fair enough that every country can define its own energy mix, but for us it's uh, energy efficiency and it is renewables, for us it is not nuclear, uh, and for us uh, it's uh, not CCS in terms of coal-fired power plants, which then uh, will subtract the CCS and put it down to earth, it will be CCUS, I think we will not live without that, uh, because there are some processes where it's hardly um, possible uh, to reduce CO2 emissions, but that are the two factors for us. To give you a fourth, the first uh, short overview on, on our energy mix so that you have a, uh, a clue of uh, on what we are talking about. Uh, we have an overall energy demand in Germany at about 2,500 terawatt hours. So forget about the, the terawatt hours, but remember the 2,500. Half of that Half of that, around 1,250, is for heat. So half of all our energy is for heat, for heating houses and for high temperature heat in industry. Half of that. Only 600 out of this uh, 2,500 is electricity. So it's only a small portion. It is not a very small one, but it's not the biggest portion. And then another 700 is for transport. So half of it heat, and almost the same for transport and for electricity. Bearing that in mind, uh, it's quite clear what we have to address. Um, and we started with our energy transition by addressing electricity, because it's the easiest way to address it. And electricity can only also help uh, to decarbonize other sectors like the heating sector, like the transport sector. So therefore, we felt that it's a good idea to address electricity first. And uh, what we did there was uh, very um, was very powerful in terms of uh, we went into a non at not at all mature technology in terms of PV, in terms of uh, wind energy, in terms of bioenergy, in terms of geothermal energy, and said uh, we pay whatever is necessary in order to make the projects bankable um, and in order to make the projects fly. And that was 50 cents per kilowatt hour at the starting point uh, for in-tariff for photovoltaics. 50 euro cents per kilowatt hour. A huge amount of money. A huge amount of money. And uh, we found at the end of the day that uh, we have two winners in Germany. The one is wind, uh, be it onshore, be it offshore. And the other one is photovoltaics. Um, the rest didn't think the decrease uh, their cost that dramatically as the other two did. Uh, and uh, we then changed uh, some two years ago the speed-in tariff into an auctioning model and we saw the prices coming down even more dramatically. And uh, the latest prices are for PV. Remember we had the starting point with 50. And the latest prices were about 4 cents per kilowatt hour in the very sunny region uh, of the world in Germany. Uh, and with wind, uh, we are also at about 4 cents per kilowatt hour onshore. And we had the first auction on offshore wind, uh, which was zero. Zero in that case, that they said, I don't need any subsidy at all. 
I'm taking just the market price, uh, what the market mechanism says, uh, and for that I can build the offshore wind farm. All I need is the permission to build an offshore wind farm and grid connection. So um, the message simply is why I'm saying that, is that the prices, as Carol said, uh, have come down dramatically. dramatically. We have that money, of course, in our backpack, um, so other countries around the world are profiting from that what we did. Uh, but that is fine, as we are profiting, uh, by the way, from the shale revolution right now in the U.S., uh, that the prices of gas are going down dramatically in, in Europe. So that's also some sort of helping each other. Um, but the message I can always convey to everybody, if you're now going to renewables, you are going in renewables on a very, very competitive base. They are cheap, they are not expensive, uh, and therefore the German energy transition will never appear for others because uh, the high amount of money you paid at the beginning is not necessary for you to pay if you enter into the game right now. Um, so that is uh, some first remarks uh, on that. Um, here we go. Very good. So, um, for each and every government it's uh, extremely important um, that you set yourself targets. According to those targets, um, agree on measures, do a monitoring of those measures, whether if you reach the targets, and if you don't reach the targets, you have to think about new measures uh, or change the measures. That's the reason why we have given ourselves targets uh, in the various ranges, and you see climate target, you see revenue target, and you see energy efficiency target. I don't want to go into the various details of the targets because we have put targets uh, underneath, but the important thing is that we give ourselves a climate target, a renewables and an energy efficiency target. And if you see that we would like to decrease the energy demand by 50% till the year 2050, that means that we will not be industrialized Germany, but we will grow whilst we reduce our energy demand. I will come back to that later and you see how necessary it is um, that you are uh, going that way of uh, giving you targets, defining measures, uh, and then uh, react accordingly. For instance, what we will not achieve, the world knows that quite well, is our climate target for 2020. So, what we've done right now, just passed uh, through our having a uh, last week, um, the decision that the Commission will bring uh, or present us a proposal by end of this year how to phase out coal. How to phase out coal because we absolutely know that uh, with our coal-fired power plants for us it would be impossible to meet the climate targets. On the other hand, you cannot simply shut them off. There is a security of supply uh, issue and there is an issue of course of people which are working in the coal business and you cannot just tell them due to climate reason, I'm so sorry, you don't have anything to work anymore, try to do something different. So you have to do a structural change there and that uh, we have now initiated because we saw that our measures didn't succeed in terms of climate protection. Um, what you see here is uh, the renewables in the electricity sector because now I'm going a little bit on the 600 uh, terawatt hours out of the 2,500 in terms of electricity. And what you can see is we came from almost nothing uh, in the very early stages of our energy transition and we are now at 37%. So nowadays, 37% of our electricity production is done by renewables. The vast majority is done by wind and photovoltaics. To give you a number, we have a, 
uh, a demand which ranges between 40 gigawatts up to 85 gigawatts, depending on daytime and weekend and so on, 40 to 85. And we have a renewable capacity in terms of wind and PV installed in Germany over 100 gigawatts. So that means our installed capacity is even higher than the biggest uh, demand we have in Germany. Therefore, we have the high percentages in our system. And I can tell you what, the grid is extremely stable. We have grid uh, um, disruption a year at about 12 minutes. So 12 minutes a year is effectively nothing. So we could um, cope with the question, can we adopt the high share of renewables, uh, the volatile ones in our grid, and we achieve that? And we would like to talk with you, of course, uh, how uh, did we achieve that? Uh, what Right? What did we do wrong? Uh, how can that perhaps be done in, in the States? That is a very interesting uh, figure. And um, with everybody I'm talking around the world um, on transparency, I tell them, try to get your data on electricity production uh, real time. We didn't have that uh, for a long time, and all the various uh, lobby groups told us uh, a lot of interesting stories. Uh, we then said we need to have in real time the electricity produced in every second uh, from every source that we know what's going on. And uh, if you see that graph, uh, you can see various things in there. First of all, you see the fluctuating demand that we have, and our demand curve is the red one. So the red curve uh, is the electricity demand in Germany. And then you can see the production. From the very top, uh, from the very bottom, you see uh, biomass, you see hydro, you see offshore wind, you see onshore wind, and the yellow one that is PV, photovoltaics. And you see in Germany, the peak of photovoltaics fits perfectly with our demand peak. That is different in the US. So therefore, it's also different uh, if you are thinking about measures how to deal with it. Uh, but for us, it fits perfectly, so then we have to adopt our measures uh, to this fit. Uh, and then you can see, uh, like at the, first of, uh, no, at the 21st of May, at the very beginning, you can see that the red line, the demand, touches the yellow one. That means at that point of time, we had 100% renewables, uh, supply for our demand. So we have really complete demand supply for renewables. But you can also see another issue, and that is the, the upper curve. The upper curve, the, the, the so what brown one, that's the price. So that is the electricity price uh, at our stock exchange. And what you can see is that at that point of time, when the renewables were 100%, the price went down and it was negative. So we have a negative price. And what we say is, uh, fine, there is nothing bad in negative prices because that very clearly tells the other generators how to behave. Because you see that um, all the time when there is um, uh, above the red line, the power generation line, that we, in, uh, that we export electricity, and if it's below that, we import electricity. And at that point of time, of course, there was much, uh, a lot of uh, electricity to be exported. And all of a sudden, there was not enough demand from other countries uh, around Germany and Europe, and then the price was negative. That forced the generators, specifically the co-generators, um, to change their behavior. So not to produce electricity, but instead uh, of that uh, um, 
shut them down or reducing them or whatever is possible. And what you also can see in this graph is uh, that what we need for this fluctuating renewable energy in the, in the electricity mix is not baseload. Baseload is poison for our energy transition in Germany. What you need is flexibility. Because the uh, sun is shining and uh, then you have PV production. Wind is blowing and then you have wind production. So it's not according to demand, it's according to weather conditions. Which means uh, they are there in any case and then you need to have flexibility to fill the gap. And the flexibility can be uh, a different one. It could be peakers, uh, gas peakers or whatever it is, very fast uh, power generators. It could be storage, it could be demand side management, or it could be neighbors. And that is something I've also discussed with my colleague from the Department of State, the Department of Energy, that I said, if you integrate uh, yourself with various states in the US, you can see that you can help each other. We, for instance, are just building a power line from Germany into Norway, because they have a lot of water, we have a lot of wind in the north, uh, so we can make use of each other. That's the cheapest flexibility you can think of. You don't need to pay for that storage facility, which are much more expensive. So all you have to do now is to create a market, an electricity market, where prices tell the truth. So that they say, there is too much electricity in the game, I will become negative. And where prices also tell the flexibilities that they are needed at that point of time, and then the cheapest flexibility will fill the gap. So that is a learning curve in Germany. Of course, as I said at the beginning, it's different in the various uh, countries around the world and also in the US, but this principle of uh, if you increase uh, volatile renewable energy, you need to have flexibility and no base load. That is valid for each and every country in the world. So um, that is something uh, we established uh, last year and we heavily used in order to uh, not be told by lobby groups that uh, offshore wind power is the best one or coal generators are the most flexible ones or whatever. We can see what happens uh, and then we can tell them how they should behave or the market tells them how they should behave. The last slide uh, before I stop is um, empty. Okay. Okay. Now it's full. Um, that comes back to my first um, uh, first uh, issue uh, on energy efficiency, and you can see the following: that we completely decoupled, completely decoupled economic growth and uh, energy demand. And I think that is something where we have to pay high attention in each and every country. That of course uh, the best kilowatt hour is that kilowatt hour which you don't need. Uh, because then you don't need to build power plants in order to keep producing. But that means also that you have to install measures in order to get the energy efficiency in place. What I've learned uh, in the last few days is that uh, still in the US there is a high demand for energy efficient products. Because uh, in the states, uh, the various uh, sort of US states, everybody feels that it's uh, not only worthwhile, but it's good for your pocket uh, if you safe energy, um, and I think with the digitalization we are um, uh, we, we are going, not only but going in, which is already there, which will continue to grow. We have millions of business models uh, where you can uh, put demand and supply together in order to save energy, the one is delivering the other one, uh, energy, be it electricity, be it heat, or whatever it is, and uh, therefore we have to pay high attention on the energy efficiency, in order to uh, achieve our goals, and I would say, in order to be, in order to be 
competitive because that economy, which does not need that energy as other economies, uh, is more competitive. I think that is clear for everybody. So therefore, again, our energy transition consists of renewables and energy efficiency of uh, two twins uh, which love each other and will bring us into the future. Thank you very much for listening. Summit, 
Not sure how, let's see a show of hands. Anybody know what the Rio Earth Summit is? That's a good number. Um, it was a really seminal moment uh, in terms of multilateral cooperation on global environmental issues, and it had been building since the 1970s and culminated with the creation of four global environmental treaties. One of them addresses climate change, one of them addresses uh, uh, biodiversification, I'm sorry, uh, biodiversity and the other desertification and the other one some might know um, dealing with a range of additional greenhouse gas emissions Montreal Protocol. So those four treaties were really seminal and the one that my organization was particularly involved in was the Framework Convention on Climate Change. And I mention it because uh, the German government has been extremely active and a true leader through that process. And most recently, I had the pleasure of being in Germany in December for one of the ministerial sessions of that negotiation. So I just wanted to thank you for hosting that conference and for all the work over many years that the German government does to promote uh, climate mitigation and, and, and adaptation activities across the world. But my comments today are, you know, complement very nicely what we just heard, which is a little bit more about the U.S. story. So we can think about some of the data that I will share with you, and then um, in the discussion, maybe you'll have some questions that, that might drill down to some of the differences in, in some places where we're kind of similarly pointed in the right direction. So this information that I'm sharing with you is from an annual report that the Council produces called the Sustainable Energy in America Backbook. There's some materials right where you entered if you want to grab them on the way out, but all this information is available for free online off of the Business Council for Sustainable Energy's webpage. And if you were to print out the Backbook, this is what it would look like. It's about 150 of the most important facts that we think policymakers, industry, and the media should know about U.S. energy markets. So it covers electricity, but it also covers transportation. Uh, it focuses on technology deployment and technology economics. So I encourage you to take a look at it. And if you were to just open up any page in the printout, you would, you would see these charts and figures. And what I like about this is that not only does it give you the data, but it also includes some commentary to put it in perspective. So I hope that you take a look at that book, and I'm going to give you a few uh, slides from it right now. I also wanted to say that the fact book you know, is something that the council commissions, but it's an independently authored publication by Bloomberg New Energy Finance. So the, the first fact that I'd like to share with you complements the, the final slide that we just saw about energy consumption and economic growth. And as you'll see here in this slide, we're showing over the last decade that our economic growth increased over 15% and our primary energy consumption was reduced by 1%. And then we see this hockey stick type figure here showing the decoupling between economic growth and energy consumption. This really runs counter to many decades of thinking about how economies grow. So this is a major point. And so we're not just seeing it in the United States, we're seeing it in Germany and we're seeing it in many other countries. Another point about this is why are we seeing this? And the Business Council and Bloomberg New Energy Finance have looked into it 
And clearly, as, as we all know, we can see it in our, on our lives, there is a greater attention to energy efficiency. We have more uh, innovation and new opportunities to reduce our energy use cost effectively. But we've assessed this and point to a resource from the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy to say that approximately 60% of this is attributed to energy efficiency policies, some of them here in Washington and some at the state and local level. So that's a real important piece for you to remember. Your work matters, the impact of policy matters in terms of getting results like this. The next slide I wanted to show you is just a breakout of the U.S. energy mix. And pretty much all the data in the fact book that we strive to be as up-to-date as possible goes through the end of 2017. So what you're seeing here is the power sector electricity generation mix. And when you go from the top to the bottom, the blue area is renewable energy, and that includes hydropower. The next area is natural gas, which is gray. And then the red represents nuclear power. And the bottom area, the darker area, represents coal. There's a little bit of oil in there right above the coal, but it's very hard to see. We don't use very much oil to generate electricity in the United States anymore. There are a few really staggering things when I look at this. Number one, the rate of change. We are seeing a very dramatic shift in terms of coal for power generation in the US electricity sector. If you were to go back 10 years, Coal production was reduced by 38% in terms of um, the generation mix. And then if you go way up at the top, in the blue area, you see renewable energy. And that started out at about 9%, and we ended at about uh, 18% at the end of 2017. That is a 90% increase in renewable energy generation. So this is a set of industries that haven't really changed much in 100 years, and we are seeing sweeping changes here, not only in terms of the benefits and increase in energy efficiency, but also in terms of the technologies that we are using to electrify the country. I would also want to note the gray area, significant change in terms of the use of natural gas for power generation, nearly a 50% increase. So again, uh, big changes, and they have implications, and we'll talk about those in a moment. On renewables, because that is a major focus of today's discussion, 18% of the generation mix, that is almost on par with our nuclear fleet. So this is a main street, main, main um, focus of our energy sector. Mainstream, I couldn't say that word for some reason. It's mainstream within the energy sector, and I'm going to break it out for you in a moment, and you can see what's underpinning that number. So here I have two charts for you. Uh, bring both of them up. On, on the left-hand side is renewable energy built, and so showing each year what's getting built and how much. And I think the big takeaway here is wind and solar represented in the yellow uh, and blue, blue being wind, yellow being solar, you know, dramatic and steady state increases over time. And then if you look at the total cumulative capacity in the renewable energy sector, you see the impact of other technologies, in particular hydropower, which is a major generator, nearly 50% is generated from hydropower. And you can see cumulatively the impact of these different renewable technologies. And, and there you'll see more biomass, waste to energy, you know, and, and geothermal, other contributors that are really important to the US renewable energy sector. So I'm going to just go one forward and 
then I'll come back to that slide. So there was a lot of discussion on technology costs, and that's a prime concern here in the U.S. marketplace as well. This chart is a little hard to understand at first glance, but let me walk you through it. This is basically showing what power purchase agreement prices are for wind and solar throughout the country. And it's broken out by a number of different regions of the country. So all the way um, up here on the left-hand side is Texas, ERCOT, going across the country. We have the southwest region, California, southeast, PJM, which is the mid-Atlantic region, MISO, which is Midwest primarily, and New York. It doesn't capture New England on this chart, but this is a pretty good view of what's going on in the country based on real projects and real power purchase agreements. If you look in the pink area across it, that's the range of wholesale power prices in those different regions. So the important thing to see is, is the yellow and blue either above or below or on top of that line. If it touches that line, that means that they were comparable and competitive within the price range. If it's below it, it means it costs less than the average wholesale power price in the region. So I think the key takeaway here, this is worth further study depending on you know, where, you know, where you're representing in terms of the country, but it's showing that there are so many parts of the country where these are economic and also there are places in the country, in particular very windy places, where wind energy is very cost competitive and below the average wholesale power price. So I want to come back to this slide now. So that's all fine and good. It's good to know what the power purchase price is, but what do consumers experience? I just said we're going through a significant period of change in the electricity sector. We are making big investments in terms of renewables, um, in terms of energy and electricity infrastructure, in terms of energy efficiency, but what do consumers experience? So the council and VNEP have been looking at kind of wholesale budgets and what proportion of an annual house, sorry, household budget. Um, the, the council's been looking at what a typical household might spend on energy and electricity and natural gas, and how has that changed over time? And what we've found is that we are nearly at record lows for both electricity, energy, and clearly for natural gas in terms of the proportion of money that a household might spend on those costs. So we, for electricity, at the end of 2017, we were in fact at a record low. Since the record started in 1959, consumers in households had not spent less as a proportion of their household budget on energy than any time on record. So really an amazing set of data there. I want to wrap up with just a snapshot on emissions. You know, we are making this transition because of a range of reasons. We're doing it for air quality, climate, economic, resilience, reliability. I mean, we could go down the list. There are so many benefits of making this change. And I wanted to highlight a key area here in terms of the change. Our emissions have really gone down dramatically in the power sector, 27-year low at the end of 2017. But what you may want to notice here is that while the power sector emissions are going down, our transportation emissions are going up. So this is very important that we address the transportation sector. And while we're doing all of this, the companies and consumers are getting more involved in the way we use energy. And they're making their own decisions. So I think when I look at the trend lines for emissions coming down across the economy, and in particular in the transportation and 
power sectors, this gives me tremendous hope. So this is showing corporate procurement of clean energy, and in this case, mostly renewable energy, over the last several years. And you just see a dramatic uptick in this type of investment from the corporate sector. And it's not just technology companies. If you get a chance to look at this slide, you'll see Anheuser-Busch, you will see General Mills, you'll see Target. So it's really expanding beyond just the big name tech companies that people hear so much about. But I wouldn't want you to think it's just about renewable energy. There's a lot going on with energy efficiency as well. And we're going to hear from Stephen soon. I'm sure they will talk about it. So this is just a few of the leading players involved in both renewables and energy efficiency leadership at the corporate level. This is what to watch. These are going to continue to expand those trend lines in terms of our energy productivity and our emissions reductions. Thank you very much. And we will now turn to hear from Siemens. Um, and we are delighted that Todd Gerlow is here with us today. Tom is the director in the distributed energy uh, in the distributed energy systems center of competence at Siemens, where he works with customers to develop distributed energy solutions. He brings more than 20 years of experience in terms of working at energy markets and working with end-use clients as well as utilities to figure out their strategic energy objectives. And he is able to especially do that because of having an extensive engineering technical background. And Siemens obviously plays a very important role in uh, North America technology employment, and so we are very glad to have Todd
gas-fired combined heat and power solutions. So we're starting to see, again, a more complex utility grid, uh, largely driven by these grid-edge technologies, not just power production, but also demand-side management programs, uh, energy efficiency programs, uh, storage on the grid, um, which are creating challenges for the utilities, um, both from a technological perspective. Now we have bi-directional flow in many places of electrons uh, from the consumer back onto the distribution grid, uh, causing utilities to have to invest in grid modernization, they have to invest in smart meters, feeder uh, automation, and, and greater and more complex software systems to manage their, their grid system. Utilities have also gone through and are going through business transformations from understanding how to participate in this more decentralized uh, energy market. Uh, in, many, in many cases, they're seeing their kilowatt hour of sales declining or remaining flat. So how do they uh, continue to make um, uh, recover for their capital investments and provide the services and solutions that they're, they're end users with? From a consumer perspective, um, there are more options that offer uh, greater uh, access to sustainable solutions, renewable energy, and greater control over their supply. From a system perspective, this transformation to decentralization uh, has a number of positive impacts to the system. Increased reliability, uh, reduced energy costs, improved resiliency, um, reduced carbon footprint, and, and enhanced control. Now, I work most closely and most frequently with the end users. So I'm going to talk for a minute about the consumer perspective uh, versus, say, the utility perspective. And we're talking to consumers that you work with, um, hospitals, uh, airports, uh, campuses, universities, these types of folks. And there are really three strong drivers uh, for, for these types of end users to evaluate, implement uh, distributed energy solutions. The first, economics. Is there a cost savings opportunity here for them? And those cost savings are driven by some of the things we've already uh, heard about the continued decline in the technology costs, solar PV decline, um, storage, battery decline, the cost decline. So we're seeing a continued decline in these costs that are making these technologies much more competitive. Uh, gas prices, the ongoing um, and expected uh, low gas prices here in the U.S. create a spark spread, the difference between the price of electricity in the market and the price to generate electricity from gas to be attractive and are having more customers looking at doing small combined heat and power and other small gas-fired generation uh, products. Um, additionally, there's and incentives are a big player in that as well. We have the federal investment tax uh, incentive, 30% on solar, 10% on, on CHP. That's a big one in the states as well. For example, in California, where they have the the S-chip or the self-generation incentive program. These are strong drivers of, um, of distributed energy projects for commercial industrial customers. Um, the second key driver, economics being the first, the second is a greater focus on resiliency. We've all experienced in the last few years um, with, you know, assuming increasing frequency of weather events, whether it's Superstorm Sandy, um, Hurricane Harvey, wildfires in Sonoma County, etc. This is causing consumers to look at the resiliency of their supply, their exposure to outages from the grid, and 
looking at solutions like microgrids uh, that can provide a greater uh, resilient, more resilient supply of electricity for their production, for their uh, operation. But, and the third key driver is sustainability. Um, you know, and the desire, as, as we should, uh, a lot of uh, corporations making commitments to utilize renewable energy to reduce their carbon footprint, and that is a key driver for uh, the, the, the uh, decentralized energy uh, transformation as well. Again, the most basic, most um, prolific example is rooftop solar, but there are others as well that support that. So, broadly speaking, um, you know, these, these trends, the shift in the fuel mix, in addition to what I talked about from the consumer perspective, from the macro perspective, the shift in the fuel mix, the more competitiveness of the technology costs, um, the favorable regulation, and the general trend of decarbonization have, uh, you know, culminated in, in a perspective that we're going to see more uh, of the generation mix being developed as distributed or decentralized projects, smaller projects. They represent about 50% of all the generation built in 2010. You can see from the graph here that the expectation is that that percentage will increase over 60% by 2020 and then continuing on by 2030. So we are seeing a transformation in the, uh, the grid mix, the production mix, to a more decentralized focus. What is Siemens doing? A couple of things I wanted to share with you about what Siemens is doing in the face of these, these market trends. Um, we've made some important acquisitions. Uh, Rolls-Royce and Dresser Rand were important acquisitions that expand our portfolio of products and services uh, in the sort of small generation space. Uh, we've uh, done a joint venture with Gamesa to be one of the top uh, winning manufacturers in the world. Um, and most recently, we formed a joint venture with ADS uh, named Fluence to be what is now the global leader in battery storage. Uh, we have over 68 projects in 16 countries around the world um, and see a tremendous growth in the battery storage market. So these four things represent almost $20 billion of investment by Siemens um, in this space and have extended our portfolio of products, services, and solutions to arrange from small power to wind to microgrids and automation there. To complement this, um, you know, we've also developed uh, a range of creative and innovative financial and commercial solutions. Uh, Siemens Financial Services has a $25 billion uh, global portfolio, an E-plus rating, and a real value driver we can bring to our customers where the capital cost of doing a distributed energy project um, may be a hurdle for them. So we've got um, approximately $8 billion of investment in energy projects in the U.S. And as I mentioned, we've created a, a, a broad portfolio of solutions from lease offerings to loans to um, design build, third-party design build, own, operate, maintain uh, type structures. So a range of structures to help foster the implementation of these solutions for customers. And, and so with that, I, I'll stop there and say uh, Thanks so much, Ty. And as you were just commenting about Siemens upgrading, it, it made me think uh, also about an announcement that Moody's made 
uh, certainly more than a year ago, with regard to sustainability becoming a part of how they are rating uh, companies and communities in terms of uh, bond ratings. So that all of this during is, is becoming much more of an issue, as Lisa talked about, uh, corporations that are in, as Todd talked about, the investments that have been made by, by Siemens, and as we also heard uh, uh, from, from Torsen, as far as uh, looking at the policies and investments that Germany has made. It's really quite incredible uh, in terms of thinking about the immense amount of change that has occurred during this last decade or so, and that we are living in a very exciting time of much, much change, and again, the, in the whole energy sector. And I think that it can be very, very exciting. What's really important is that um, we sort of need it to happen very quickly because we are also facing enormous environmental so let's open it up for a much broader discussion to hear what your comments or questions may be of this terrific panel of experts. Anybody want to? Okay, we'll start back here. First of all, thank you very much for the great presentation. Uh, my name is uh, John Rochon, and I work for a small uh, consulting company with this can you speak up a little bit? Sure. Having difficulty hearing it. I had a question for Mr. Park. Was did Germany ever uh, evaluate or experience uh, implementation of a, a carbon tax as a measure to reduce, I guess, control greenhouse gases? Yeah. First. First of all. Um, we have the European Emission Trading uh, System, the EPS, uh, which we are uh, right now renovating um, a lot because uh, we started up with a system where um, we gave a lot of credits uh, specifically to the industry, uh, which is a worldwide competition, and uh, that led to the fact that uh, the budget was met, yes, uh, but the price was too low uh, as to have incentives in order to uh, continue a no carbon uh, way for many, many reasons. So uh, that is on the way of renovating. Uh, it's also uh, part of that financial uh, package for Europeans to pay on that. So for that, we want to go on the European way because we feel that uh, if each and every country in Europe goes its own way, that they don't fit to each other and then it doesn't create an energy union, what we actually need in Europe. Uh, that's for the, for the ETS, uh, the emission trading system. And then we have the non-ETS sector, uh, that is mainly buildings, uh, transport, um, parts of the industry, and uh, agriculture. And then we are facing uh, the same problem as uh, Lisa showed, that uh, the US is bad uh, in getting uh, the transport on track, and we are uh, bad in getting the transport on track. So all our, our emissions in the transport sector are, are increasing, they are not decreasing. And uh, there are a lot of debates right now um, in Germany um, from all of the lobby groups uh, to think about uh, a carbon price, uh, we'll call it tax or a carbon uh, measure, in, in order to address it. But, uh, um, in our collision treaty, uh, we don't have uh, any uh, task like that. So, uh, I 
to say, so we don't have uh, the task to, to do so. Um, and the time will show, I will call it that way, uh, what the lobby groups uh, will tell us. Uh, I'll give you one example. We have, a, we have a mismatch of pricing for electricity and um, gas. Um, and that creates a big problem uh, in energy savings, uh, specifically in the heat sector. So we can select from 20, 30, 40 different suppliers by internet. So I can now change uh, my gas supplier via internet. I do it in once, uh, one minute, really. Uh, I can change my electricity supplier in the internet. But the range of, uh, of, of prices is for gas. Four cents, around four cents, uh, euro cents per kilowatt hour, and for electricity, thirty cents per kilowatt hour. So there is no way uh, that anybody should think that he will uh, change uh, a gas boiler, for instance, uh, by a heat pump, uh, which is uh, driven by electricity, uh, with this uh, price. And I think, uh, on the long run, on the long run, we have to be very clear that if we have given, and that's what we did ourselves, that emission budget in Paris uh, to meet uh, the two degrees um, increase, uh, that the demand for fossils will be reduced. It must be reduced, Other, otherwise it wouldn't work. So if this will be reduced, the clear logic is uh, that the price will continue to go down because there is a lot of uh, fossils there. The Shell Revolution, I think, shows quite clearly how much there is. Um, and then we have to ask ourselves at one point of time, and that must be a fast point of time, uh, either we get a price on, on CO2, or we have to acknowledge uh, that we cannot prevent economies from using the cheap sources. So that is a debate going on in Germany uh, right now. Uh, we as a government currently have no plans as we have to fulfill our collision treaty, uh, but let's see what the time will bring.
there is a process by which the utility, I'm talking now just about the utilities, not the entire economy, um, but when there are costs associated with um, restoring power, restoring services, thinking about how to plan for them in the future, and what types of resources or investments need to be made, a lot of that is done at the state level. You know, in concert, either if they're a public utility with their local government or if they're an investor-owned utility with their public utility commission. And they go through an annual or sometimes every two or three years process by which they decide, you know, really what they will invest in. And that's where a lot of this question comes up. And, of course, there is a huge emphasis on affordability and making sure that, you know, the costs are, if there are going to be new costs, that they're socialized appropriately within that jurisdiction. But, you know, it has not been an easy process. I look back at what PSEG tried to pursue right after Sandy, which was a very large grid modernization um, proposal that they sent to their utility commission. And initially, it largely was said, no, sorry, we need to re this is way too much investment. We'll worry about impacts on consumers. And we need to rethink this a little bit. So they proved a little bit of it, and then uh, both of it wasn't done. And you know, what we've also seen is we're getting more economic data from the storms or these or wildfires or any number of um, disasters. Is that free mitigation has a huge payoff in the long run? So here's a situation where we had tremendous disruption in um, New Jersey and in other states in the Mid Atlantic and Northeast region, and appropriate plans were put forward. Um, but the initial reaction, maybe not to the specific proposals, was, oh my, this might add costs, even though maybe some of those investments would save dollars in a future storm. So I think we have a challenge uh, working with the regular, regulatory community in trying to find a better way to quantify the benefits of pre-mitigation investments or investments in electric power infrastructure, and it's not fully resolved. So it's an ongoing issue. It is of prime importance to the public utility commissioners and others making those decisions. Your second question was about uh, you know, what we might expect in terms of electricity uh, demand going forward. Yes, those slides don't contemplate significant electric vehicle or, or other um, aspects of electrification if it happens at a much larger scale than we have right now. So I mean, I think it's possible that that could change. You know, we were looking at energy, total energy, not electricity versus GDP. So we're looking at total energy. So that might net it out a little bit. But yeah, we may see some shifts in terms of where the energy sector grows or declines based on a deep electrification initiative. Yeah, for, for, for the two points, um, First, what we see is uh, there will be not the electricity price uh, that changes dramatically because, as Bob uh, explained, we are not uh, only undergoing a energy transition and a revolution from uh, one fuel to the other. We're also going undergoing a revolution from decentralized uh, from centralized to absolutely decentralized uh, with digitalization on top of that. So, what we see right now is um, that the, there is a variety of business models. Uh, we have the first one that you have in the US too, uh, where there are intelligent companies putting together, let's say, 20 uh, or 30 or whatever households combine uh, them with uh, whatsoever decentralized generation or storage facility, and then they have their price. It's interesting.
interesting enough, that's interesting enough, and I think we will see different prices. And Germany, for instance, says, as I said, we have a range of electricity prices, which is between 3 cents per kilowatt hour, that's not exchange, and 30 cents per kilowatt hour, uh, with this, uh, which is for the private person to pay, because we pay the backpack uh, for uh, getting the renewables price down at the very beginning, and of course we pay a lot for, uh, for the grid enlargement there, yeah, but um, that will change completely dramatically and you'll see a lot of different uh, pricing issues around it would, uh, would be very clear. Uh, the, other, the other aspect um, um, is on that, on that uh, yeah, exactly. I, I, I think that uh, we will see a, a shift uh, in any case that we will have a higher percentage of uh, electric uh, um, electricity and the overall energy demand. What I don't see uh, is uh, an all-electric world uh, because there are certain applications, be it aircraft, be it uh, shipping business uh, or high temperature process uh, heating, uh, which is where it's hard to imagine how to do this with electricity and perhaps there are cheaper options. Uh, but there will be an in-between product uh, which uh, may be electricity which will increase. So what we've uh, just done um, recently is uh, we, we allowed uh, an offshore wind farm to be uh, built in our uh, North Sea, which is not grid connected. So what they are doing is they are just producing hydrogen offshore and bring it down to shore because they have their customers. But then you can argue is that electricity, you know, at the end it's hydrogen, but in between there was electricity, so therefore the world is getting uh, more and more electric, yes. Great, thank you. Uh, we have a question over here. Yeah, considering uh, these innovations and its uh, ability to be used as a base load power source, how do you uh, all of you see uh, geothermal play into the uh, energy mix in the future? I can answer that very quick. Yes, there is a high potential worldwide. No, there is no big potential in Germany. Different energy transitions in different countries. <laughs> um, maybe just that, you know, it's really, again, going back to the point about policy. I mean, there, first of all, geothermal is, you know, a really valued resource in our renewable portfolio, and where, you know, we can capture that resource, we should be doing it, you know. Um, and I, my point really just related to kind of some federal policy dynamics. So, Having the federal government play a role if we wanted to pursue more geothermal, we could, you know, invest in research, development, and deployment, and we could ensure that other policies that we have um, treat geothermal as well as other renewable technologies in a level playing field. And one area where that hasn't really happened for geothermal has been on tax policy. And so making sure that when we're looking at our tax measures that we are treating uh, energy resources, not just, it, it, to say a level playing field is a little too simplistic because these industries have very different business models, so I would more say creating uh, measures, and in this case this is an incentive, make sure that they match the business models and the needs for investors in that sector. So what might work for wind might be very different for geothermal, and in fact it is. And I would just add that geothermal has, as you were alluding, uh, some benefits that are not necessarily priced out the same way as, as some of the other resources, and that that's very important to keep in mind, as well as the fact that geothermal is both important from an electricity 
point of view on a larger scale as well as thinking about the whole role of the geosource team calls. Tell it, do you want to add to that? Well, I was just going to say, I think as you said in your question, that you know what makes geothermal somewhat unique is that it's one of the few uh, controllable renewable technologies, uh, you know, not unlike wind and solar. Um, so there's a lot of value there in that. I think, um, you know, my experience with geothermal, one of the greatest cost risks associated with that is, you know, the risk for uh, analysis and, and the quote-unquote dry hole risk of, you know, what do we have for a thermal reservoir? So, if that risk can be overcome, then the technology cost is can be competitive. And there are certain areas in this country as well as certainly globally where geothermal is a really rich, rich resource. Okay, over um, over here, then that here. Well, okay, we'll start over here, and then we'll work our way back up. Okay, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, Mr. Tyler from the Hand Foundation, the German Public Foundation. Um, so what we heard from Mr. Truman, is that correct, um, is that like uh, the energy grid is being decentralized. And the uh, feed-in system in Germany in the first part of the energy vendor greatly contributed to that. Do you see a threat, Mr. Herdan, uh, that um, the shift to the auction system reverses this development to something new? I don't see any problem with that because uh, you see with the feed-in tariff that was necessary if you start by zero, uh, you need to create a bankable product uh, and if you try it by, by, by zero to auction something that doesn't work at all, that would have been extremely costly. So, but then there was the time when we had uh, more than 20% and even more of uh, renewable share uh, and then we said uh, there is really no need that the government sets the price without knowing what the price would be uh, if, if you would let the market decide but the government should set the quantity you will need to install every year which then also goes in line with the grid expansion that's the very difference um, and then the market would set the price and the market reacted to that and we saw a lot of projects uh, which are small ones coming in but we didn't do the auction of course for the very decentralized uh, area so let's say rooftops uh, they are still at the fixed feed in tariff because an auction for I don't know what the 10 uh, kb uh, rooftop for the solar panel is a little bit of a nonsense so um, I think uh, that will then be overcome because uh, the, the cost of energy is going that dramatically down um, that it's uh, uh, I would say in a few years time not necessary to have uh, an auction or any undiscriminated uh, access to the grid. Uh, perhaps that could be an option one way around that uh, we just option the uh, undiscriminated uh, access to the grid. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the point. Okay. Uh, if you could also Uh, 
sustainable with how it impacts um, watersheds and water resources um, in consuming water to be used and stored for that uh, energy potential. So I was wondering um, what your opinions were on the future of hydro power in uh, renewable energy generation. I would just point you to one of our board members, the National Hydropower Association, and they have tremendous resources. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't see the gentleman who's speaking. Okay, um, about hydropower in general and all the issues you raise. And I think they're really important because um, communities need to feel comfortable with the energy resources. They're demanding that they want to have more control over the energy resources that they, they benefit from. You know, from the business council's perspective, I'd also like to highlight the tremendous opportunity that hydropower provides. I mean, again, right now, it's pretty much half of our renewable energy fleet is the country, and it offers, I like that word, controllable, um, a renewable resource. And, you know, so it's, it's a really big part of our system. But what I find really interesting about hydropower, there was a Department of Energy report called Hydrovision that's come out in the last couple of years, where it talks about what basically improvements, efficiency gains, incremental investment in the current hydropower fleet can deliver in terms of new renewable energy resources. It's a tremendous amount. So I think we have to look you know, holistically as we're making decisions on energy investments, but I would encourage you to check out the Hydrovision report because it's very extensive. And I think it will answer some of the questions you might have. But it also shows you, you know, the significant value that hydropower provides today and what it can in the future. Carol, I don't know if you have any other comments to make. The only other things that I would raise, uh, it's important to recognize that I think it's only about 3% of all the dams in the U.S. actually have hydro generators on them. Uh, and that, as Lisa said, as we look at all of the new turbines that have become available, of those is just being gigantically improved. The, you know, there are issues with regard to thinking about as we are looking at more and more in terms of climate events, what happens as far as snowpacks, the adequacy of that, what that means for water supply and release, so that those are issues that are becoming a greater concern. But there's also a whole range of additional technologies in the water area that frankly are really, really um, fascinating that are available in terms of looking at marine uh, hydrokinetic um, uh, run-up stream that do not require new large impoundments. And in fact, there are other places, as we, as we look at the changes and the opportunities that can be brought, it's really amazing the innovation that folks are finding. For example, in terms of thinking about um, water systems in terms of all of our water pipe infrastructures. Many of them are gravity fed, and so as you look at that, you can pick up power. If you put in little turbines in a lot of these water pipes, you can pick up a lot of electricity that way. Uh, small amounts, but you know it all counts up, and it's free passing, and it's also locally generated. Uh, did you want to add anything? Well, I was just going to add that, um, you know, as Torsten mentioned his talk, that the need, the greater need for flexibility um, associated with the renewables. Now, I know, uh, you know, so as you mentioned, not all hydro projects are the same. For example, um, you know, you have pump storage projects, and I know folks are working on pump storage projects, which are essentially a closed loop 
of, you know, you pump water up at night when the demand on the system is low, and then that's available during the day when, uh, you know, you may have some renewable variation or some other needs of the system. That, that is, that's available. So it creates that flexibility, that storage, and essentially it's, it's a closed system. So there, as you mentioned, there's a number of technologies that are water-related that can be valuable to the system. Uh, sure. Okay, we have a six. Okay, right there. Thank you. I'm Renshin from Congressional Group Boston's office, and I have two questions regarding to great interconnections. The first is, with the share of renewables keep increasing, if we have larger scale of great interconnections, will the demand of energy storage increase or decrease? And the second is, what is your comments on a larger scale of grid interconnections? For example, is it possible to have a global interconnection, grid interconnections? Thank you. Uh, first of all, um, I don't know whether the demand of storage will increase. What I know is, uh, as Tom said, uh, the demand of flexibility will increase, will increase dramatically. And if uh, storage whatsoever, because it's, uh, storage is not, uh, doesn't equal uh, to storage, yeah? so many different storage devices, uh, from that one up to a pump idle, um, and that's somewhat different. But if storage, uh, whatever sort, uh, proves to be the cheapest flexibility, and the market is going to choose that storage, then of course storage will also increase. So that's uh, the question uh, we have to raise. It's always coming down to flexibility, that's what we need. Storage is one sort of that. And the other, other, other aspect, I would say, uh, why not? <laughs> um, I cannot say yes because I don't have a crystal ball in my hand, but I would say why not? If it is possible, uh, and it is to pick out gas in Siberia and to bring it down five, six, seven thousand kilometers uh, into Europe, competitive prices, uh, obviously. Why should it not be uh, possible uh, to take out electricity uh, in China to bring it down uh, to Europe? Why should it not be possible to take out uh, the sun in the Atacama Desert and bring it down to, uh, to Europe uh, in hydrogen format? So all I'm saying is uh, I, don't, I think there will be a lot of innovations uh, in the next decades to come. And what we should make use of uh, is follow this innovation line and try to be in the driver's seat uh, if it comes to our economies, uh, finding out uh, the innovation and making money from that and helping the world. Hello. Heather <coughs> Spence, I'm a JBS fellow in the Department uh, of Energy's Water Power Technologies Office, and I'm interested to hear more about your perspectives on marine energy, such as tidal or wave, um, what you envision its role to be potentially in, in Germany or more broadly? Perhaps to start uh, with, with uh, Germany, we have a lot of um, R&D going on in all sorts of uh, water-connected energy technologies. Uh, so far, um, they have, for Germany, only for Germany, not uh, proven uh, to be successful in terms of um, I don't know how that will continue, but uh, as it was said before, um, the, the water as such, whether it's a tide, whether it's wave, whether it's pump tide, or whether it's uh, uh, 
uh, rivers or whatever, I think has a huge potential uh, worldwide uh, to grow, a huge potential to grow. Uh, giving you one example, we have uh, just recently built, not we as a government, but one of our companies uh, in Germany, recently, recently built uh, a hydro storage tower, what it is, 80 meters or so, uh, for a decentralized purpose. Uh, that worked out and proved to be successful uh, on, the, on the pricing issue, so uh, that's fine. Um, I think worldwide there is a lot of potential, but uh, again, it's not the glass ball in our hands. Uh, so far for Germany, the two winners were WinMPB, that uh, we have to, uh, have to see. But you know, you can always figure out how to do turbines attached to those offshore wind farms and cable that in, right? Uh, hi, my name is Michael. I'm from Commerce and Womack's office. And my question is uh, if the United States were to pursue a similar policy to Germany where we would get more and more of our energy from renewable resources, where would be the uh, best place economically to begin to do that? Would be investing more? Offshore wind farms or more solar farms or hydroelectric dams or geothermal plants and things such as that? I think um, I'm going to go to my colleagues' comments. I know from many of the industries that I represent, we're looking for a marketplace that provides value on different technology, on different services or benefits to energy production and use. And we're not quite there yet, and we have a lot of change. So we have a lot of new. Um, technologies that weren't available when a lot of the rules of the road were, were set for how we would generate uh, and distribute energy resources. So I think we wouldn't focus as much on any particular technology per se, but we would try to set a long-term vision through the pricing structures, through market-based structures, to help uh, achieve the ultimate goals that we seek. And so one of the areas that's a big focus, and obviously there are um, environmental benefits, there are economic benefits. And one area that we're working a lot on right now, as we talked about, was like resilience and reliability benefits. And how do, in this case, electricity markets, quantify those and then help make investments to ensure that that's what's delivered, if that's the goal. And, and part of it is, is very local. These are local decisions, in many cases, in our current regulatory structure. There is also a role for the federal government in certain markets in the country, but it's largely done at the state level. So it's a very complicated but exciting time. But again, we try to look at neutral policies. We set a long-term goal and then really let the marketplace make the decision so we can have what we believe would be the most cost-effective outcome. But I have to say that it's not a perfect system. So we're not starting from scratch. We are starting with a system where decisions and preferences are already built in. So that's a little challenging. But nonetheless, I see increasingly um, those that are making these decisions see a vision very much described on what this panel has been discussing and trying their best to get to that outcome. So it may be a little messy here and there, not perfect along the way, but I'm seeing more of a consensus in terms of the vision and what's possible, and then they will adapt the rules to um, try to get to those objectives. And I would just add that we've seen in many places, in many states, about 30 states have had renewable portfolio standards because they had a really broad range of renewable resources that made sense to develop. And so that you have um, 
states like my home state of Iowa, for example, you have Texas, they have enormous amounts of wind that they put on the grid because it economically has made so much sense and that they have really driven down the price of electricity and furthermore, there are more and more dollars being local because of risk being generated. So that's just one, one little example. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what Lisa said. I mean, you have to sort of let the market determine what makes sense. And, and, and historically, what we've seen is it's largely driven by the resource availability, right? You have a big swath of the middle of the country that is, is wind-dominated because you have that resource in that wind alley. In the west, you have solar. In the northwest, you have hydro. In the northeast, biomass. So, you know, a lot of it is uh, a function of the resource availability and the economics of that resource. Um, I think what we have to do is continue to price in the value of resiliency, as we said. Um, you know, what is the value of having that rooftop solar or that, that decentralized energy project to the grid, but also the capital cost of the way it is to a transmission or distribution system upgrade? And how does that get priced in? So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's those issues and how they affect the economic competitiveness of the different There's been a lot of discussion about flexibility, and I think as, as Lisa has raised too, the whole issue of resilience is becoming increasingly important across the country, uh, as we see more and more really extreme weather events. And so we have been very glad to see on both sides of the hill uh, uh, concern expressed about this resilience and the need to address it through, for example, um, uh, looking at amendments to the FAA, the, the Federal Aviation Authorization Bill, in terms of looking at, at disaster mitigation as, as a way to really look at some of these issues, certainly in the built uh, infrastructure area. We have a couple other questions. Okay, okay, let's go here first, and then we'll go back here. Not too bad. Okay. Could you, we can't hear. Can you hear me now? Yes. I'm Daniela Jasso, I'm from NPR, and I was wondering, I saw a lot of private German investors um, were showing up in Puerto Rico to offer ideas for renewable energy, and I was wondering if there's any German government support for uh, exporting your technology to different places in America. Yeah, there is, there is a lot, actually. Um, we, we do it in, in, in three or four ways, I have to say four ways. Uh, first of all, what we're doing is uh, that with all our international energy partnerships, uh, we do a lot with California, for instance, uh, and uh, close states and such, um, we are trying to explain what we have experienced over our energy transition period of time. The, what I said before, mistakes uh, done and uh, lessons learned, and then we take our industry with us uh, so that they can make contact directly and see where there are business models uh, which are good for them. And uh, if, if others see that they are experienced, that they can solve, for instance, the problems with the grid and uh, integrate hybrid shares of renewables, uh, then you have business contact and uh, something hopefully will happen. Uh, the second point is what we do when we have uh, a so-called export initiative uh, where we take uh, small and medium-sized companies to various countries around the world so they define the technology, they define the country and we go with them together uh, because with small and medium-sized companies it's a problem uh, to find the partners around the world. The third point we have is uh, that within the international formats, the G7, G20, uh, or the International Energy Agency, the International Renewable Energy Agency, 
um, that we um, do that also the business uh, type of thing together with it. Um, and, and the fourth is uh, that uh, with our um, Ministry for International Cooperation, uh, we have a lot of uh, money associated uh, to specific projects. But what we not so that are the four uh, ways. What we are not doing is uh, taking taxpayers' money from Germany uh, in order to build uh, whatsoever renewable uh, power plants in other countries in the world, because then you never know where to start and where to end, and the German taxpayer hopefully uh, most probably would not be that happy about it. Thank you. And we'll take one last question from Thank you, Bob. This is the Council. There was a big swath of the graph that we looked at, which is a gray area called natural gas. And uh, Mr. Worden has spoken, I think, accurately at the very beginning that a lot of our progress depends upon new technologies, fracking, and the like, declines in cost of natural gas. And you better recall, we're on NPR. <laughs> The question is whether we're going to move to a, and if in Germany I'm interested, to a no carbon economy or a low carbon economy, and how do you see the future of natural gas in this country? Frankly, it's increasingly controversial because of some of the local impacts, environmental and, and the rest. So, how about natural gas, and where are we going to head on that on that curve? I think it was also to me, yeah. um, at the end of the day, we have to be in a no-carbon economy or we can forget about our Paris goals and we can see an increase in temperature uh, around the globe and uh, the ultimate uh, search for another planet. Um, so I think that is uh, quite, quite obvious and quite clear. Um, but there is a, a way to go there. And uh, for us, uh, natural gas uh, is, a, is a bridge technology, uh, but that is a long bridge. And, uh, wide bridge um, and, and a good bridge. Uh, we don't know how long it takes us, uh, but it's certainly not for a few years only to come, I would say, it's for decades. Um, and gas, uh, I'm not now talking about natural gas, I'm talking about gas. Gas has the possibility to also be renewable uh, at some point of time. Uh, it, it is, of course, not uh, natural gas, where, where, where coal cannot be renewable. Coal is coal, uh, full stop and it carries the CO2 uh, around it. Um, we see that, for instance, in Germany, we need to have the fuel switch from coal to gas, which dramatically would reduce CO2 emissions uh, in Germany, and that's well for many, many other countries in the world, looking to China, and, 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 and that's what you've done with the share revolution, uh, actually, as Lisa showed quite clearly, in the power sector in the US. Um, and there are many, many possibilities uh, for, for natural gas, and therefore we see that uh, our natural gas demand in all over Europe, but also specifically in Germany, will increase for the power sector in any case, uh, for the industry sector also. And um, the question is, do we get uh, the efficiency, the energy efficiency, faster so that uh, the consumption of gas in Germany for heating purposes uh, uh, will decrease, but uh, all over the next decade is an increase in uh, natural gas. And then uh, we have to think about what natural, or what gas infrastructure do we need, and I'm talking about gas, which can also be adapted then um, to renewable gas infrastructure. And, and it's nothing uh, which is only a vision, uh, you know. Uh, if we say we build an offshore wind farm which produces hydrogen, uh, that is renewable hydrogen, that's also gas, and that will be used for high temperature um, in, in industry uh, applications. I can 
tell you one, one thing uh, about future vision, uh, because nobody knows what the future will bring. But when I worked in industry for a long, long time, um, I, I met a, a, a good friend then of mine, his name was Franz Tucker. Uh, he was the guy who founded Tucker Vintage, which became Enron and then GE, so that is the founder of uh, GE Wit at least. Um, there were the two in Germany, Anacon, uh, I was talking with Franz Tucker with Tucker. And uh, it must have been some 20 years ago, and he told me, Thorsten, what do you think about? Uh, we have we see all the problems of wind turbines on land. Why should we not put them in the sea? I said, what? Yeah, think about it. Uh, having wind turbines in the sea, uh, there is a much more constant wind speed and then that. And I looked at him and said, uh, what type of uh, trucks you have taken, uh, by the way? So it was absolutely out of any uh, idea that we would build offshore wind farms. Uh, so therefore, I would say there is a bridge uh, of natural gas, and I personally think that we will see a lot of uh, renewable gas uh, in the future, perhaps not in the near future, but uh, in the future. I just wanted to mention quickly another issue to this been raised with regard to natural gas. So as, as we look at increasing amounts being used, for example, here in the U.S. for, for power generation, do we also need to be really looking at the capture of CO2, the utilization and because of the environmental quantities? I, I think that uh, the CCU Act, specifically in industry, is some sort of a must. Um, I also think that this combination uh, with advanced uh, oil recovery uh, is a business model. Uh, for us uh, in Germany, um, the CCS, uh, in order to continue coal-fired power plants uh, to generate electricity, is a no-go. Uh, because we feel that uh, that's a bad act uh, at some point. Uh, then we have other options. Uh, although, but for industry, uh, I think we will see CCUS. So, unfortunately, we are now past the hour, and I want to thank all of you for coming, and I hope that you all learned a lot. And I want to thank our wonderful panel for.